It's Tuesday, July 14th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Mr. Jason Moser. Good to see you. Hey, hey, good to see you. We've got airlines. We've got uh, a red hot IPO that we're going to get to. We're going to start, though, with the big banks. JP Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo both out with second quarter reports. Shares of Wells Fargo down about 5%, as you and I are talking now, Jason. <laughs> JP Morgan Chase slightly in the positive range. Um, and look, you uh, host industry focus on Mondays, focusing on banking and financials. You know this world better than I do. To my untrained eye, the main difference here in these two quarterly results is uh, investment banking. I mean, JP Morgan Chase posted nearly $10 billion in trading revenue this quarter. That's a record for them. Uh, that certainly is um, a tool in their toolkit that Wells Fargo just doesn't have. Yeah, and you know, I, I did make a point in the notes this morning. I said, thank goodness for investment banking, because you're right. In the case of JP Morgan, um, I mean, investment banking was that that really helped keep them, you know, looking a little bit more on the, on the glass half full side uh, today. That investment banking was up 85% for them. And you're right, Wells Fargo just doesn't have that same um, dynamic to the business. Let's start with the bad news first, Chris. Let's end on some good news. So, we'll start with the bad news first. And when I say bad news, unfortunately, I mean Wells Fargo. So, sorry for all you Wells Fargo shareholders out there. But, um, you know, when we talked about this last quarter, the headline really summed up in two words was loss reserves. And, and that really hasn't changed this quarter. I think we were hoping we would get a little bit more, um, you know, understanding as to, as to how how to really quantify the effect of this pandemic. Um, we're still not quite there yet. But when we look at Wells Fargo, I mean, $8.4 billion increase in loss reserves. And, you know, we knew going into this quarter for Wells Fargo, it was going to be a problem because of the stress test, because of their uh, precarious, really, financial position. And really, this is all stuff that's sourced Back to being, it's like 2016 with all of these these culture issues and the account scandal and whatnot. They're really paying the piper from from uh, you know all of this controversy that, that stemmed from a few years back, and, and it really is because you know the pandemic is, is putting everyone in such a pinch. But you know Charlie Scharf said it in the release, and I think this is what we were really expecting to hear from them. He said, "I quote: Our view of the length and severity of the economic downturn has deteriorated considerably from the assumptions used last quarter." which drove the $8.4 billion addition to our credit loss reserve in the second quarter. And he goes on to say, while the negative impact of the pandemic is unprecedented, and many of our business drivers were negatively impacted, our franchise should perform better, and we will make changes to improve our performance regardless of the operating environment. Now, the good news is, I, I think he's right. The franchise should perform better. They're going to make changes, but some of those changes, really, they're making not necessarily voluntarily, right? The stress test sort of commanded that they make these changes. And, and one of those changes, the dividend is going to get slashed uh, considerably in the third quarter. Um, they'll have to just sort of play it by ear quarter by quarter uh, from that point going forward to see the kind of financial status the bank is able to maintain. But but clearly, so tied to the housing market, it's really putting them in a bind. Does Wells Fargo benefit over the next, call it three to five years? Because they are a more consumer-facing bank than the other big banks on Wall Street. Do they benefit more from consumers just saving more money 
Does that help them? Does that move the needle for them? Because I'm seeing more and more arguments, um, pretty compelling in some cases, that one of the ripple effects of the pandemic in the United States is people are going to be better at saving money. Yeah, I mean, hopefully that's hopefully that's a long term uh, byproduct of this, and and I mean, I think generally speaking, yes, they should uh, be able to benefit from consumers saving money. I mean, you figure uh, the more capital they have, the more they're able to do with it. The problem is these banks are suffering from uh, just a, a very, very low rate environment. That net interest margin that they keep reporting uh, continues to just essentially have a lid placed on top of it. And so, you know, they, they, they pay out a certain amount of money for, for people leaving money in the accounts, and then they pull in a considerable amount of money from the money that they lend out. And any which way you put it, with rates where they are, they're, they're not pulling in nearly as much as they might normally on those loans. Um, and they pretty much already, you know, hit about as low as they can go on deposit rates. So I'd, I'd say that's, that's not really a source of strength for them right now, but they're not the only ones in, in that, um, you know, in, in that sort of bucket, so to speak. Now, I mean, when you look at JP Morgan, I mean, same story, net reserve build of $8.9 billion. Uh, last quarter, that was on top of $6.8 billion. Uh, the good news is that, that JP Morgan is a far better capitalized bank. It's not dealt with the cultural issues. It has that investment banking uh, segment to the business up 85%, as I mentioned. They facilitated $28 billion uh, in, in Paycheck Protection Program loans. And while that's not really going to be a big source of, of income really for them, and as a matter of fact, I think that JP Morgan and the other big banks decided that the money that they do make from that program, they'll donate to charity, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but but it, you know, it, it keeps money moving through the system and probably nets them a few new accounts. Um, repurchases have been suspended at least through the end of this, this current quarter. But the good news is for shareholders, they intend to maintain that 90 cent per share dividend in the current quarter as well. So, JP Morgan certainly on, on firmer footing, and I think that is just really a testament to leadership and culture that has uh, you know, been with that bank for such a long time. Wells Fargo clearly in the midst of a cultural change, and I'm sure five years from now, they'd like to be looking a little bit more like JP Morgan does today. Last thing before we move off the banks, anything come out of Jamie Dimon's mouth um, regarding the economy in general that uh, that caught your attention? No, you know, I didn't see anything in the actual release other than just cautious optimism. I mean, I think the general feeling is that this is dragging on a little bit further than people were probably hoping, but they they probably thought maybe this this case scenario was a possibility anyway, and in, in that. You know, it's good in that they, I think, have prepared for the worst and really uh, hope for the best. J.P. Morgan, that is, and Wells Fargo, not not quite able to do the same thing. So I'd, I'd put I'd put J.P. Morgan management still, you know, cautiously optimistic. But really, they've done a good job of of preparing for the worst and, and then you know, sort of hoping for the best. Shares of Delta Airlines down a bit this morning. Second quarter. Look, there are a lot of numbers here. The one that caught my attention: <laughs> uh, adjusted operating revenue. 91% lower than a year ago. Um, yeah. You know, anytime a business is talking openly and clearly about their recovery plans, you know that the business is challenged, to say the least. And in the case of Delta, they're being, being very clear about the fact that they are looking to reduce their fleet 
and that they see a future where they are, to use their words, a smaller, more efficient airline. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. And I mean, in line with that operating um, profit number you were talking about, I mean, you look even just at that very, the source of that, right? That top line revenue number, um, revenue down 88% from a year ago. Um, this quarter, which I mean, that that's the driver of everything, really. I mean, you know, and, and at this point, airlines are just stuck in a position where the demand is 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 just not there. I mean, for obvious reasons, and so they have to figure out how to deal. Uh, they're dealing with trying to buy uh, employees out for retirement packages, early retirement packages. They're furloughing. They're having to let people go. Uh, doing everything they can ultimately to reduce that daily cash burn. It did mention that they've. They've uh, brought that number down to 27 million. That daily cash burn down to 27 million uh, by the end of June, which was down from roughly 100 million a day at the end of March. So they're really in cash conservation mode. And you know, I mean, thankfully Delta does have some capital resources to deal, and the debt they have on their balance sheet is is staggered out. But but I mean, I think all airlines are really finding themselves in a real uh, predicament here. I, I think that you know Delta's in a place where they can weather this storm for a while. Um, they mentioned, I think they quantified it as 19 months of liquidity. I don't think this is going to be something that drags on for 19 months. And, and perhaps it's one of those situations where when things start to improve, hopefully we're looking towards the end of this year, beginning of next year, Delta might be one of those strong companies that comes out of this a little bit stronger. But no doubt, airlines are not the place to be these days. Am I right that later this week you're going to be doing a little boots on the ground, or rather boots in the air <laughs> research on Delta Airlines? You are correct. Yeah, I'm actually gonna. I'm gonna be putting my. Uh, I'm gonna be putting my my skills to the test. I'm going to be flying Delta down to Atlanta and then uh, renting a car at the airport in Atlanta to drive down to Moultrie to go see my mom and dad. Uh, you know, and, and take a few days to go relax and, and play some golf with my dad. Just sort of catch up with them. Um, so, so yeah, I'm going to be very interested to see this experience all the way from going to the airport here, getting to the airport in Atlanta, renting the car. No, I'm not renting a car from Avis, folks, so don't worry about that. Uh, or Hertz, rather. I'm sorry. Hertz, right? It was Hertz that just declared bankruptcy, not Avis. Um, but, yeah, I'll, I'll certainly come back with any and all notes regarding the travel experience, because I'm sure it'll be a little bit different. I don't know. Is Hertz still operating? I mean, maybe you could get a deal. It was like a deal now. It was a box that I could check on booking.com, but you know what? I thought, sheesh, I know a little, I don't want to, I don't want to get a car from those guys. They might be cutting corners. So I think I went with Enterprise. Smart move. (laughs) Um, Encino provides cloud based software for financial institutions. Uh, The company is based in Wilmington, North Carolina, and not. And Sino, California, <laughs> as I think both you and I were very much hoping. Um, it uh, starts trading today under the ticker NCNO. Uh, we're closing in on 12 noon at this moment, Jason. And typically, when a company goes public, by now, the price is known. Uh, whenever this uh, price gets revealed, uh, probably not before the end of uh, recording this podcast, uh, it's going to be something to see because they initially sent uh, set the IPO at twenty eight to twenty nine dollars a share. They increased it to thirty one dollars a share, and everything I'm seeing from financial media and uh, from uh, sort of FinTwit, if you will, is that when this gets open to the public, it is going to be north of sixty dollars a share, possibly even north of seventy dollars a share. Um, 
you had a, a chance to look at Encino's S1. What did you think? Yeah, well, I, I mean, listen, the first condition has been met. I mean, it does use the term SAS in its S1 multiple times. So, I mean, it, it's got that going for it. So, no matter what it does, I mean, SAS, you've got the market's attention at this point, um, for better or worse. Uh, I, I, you know, in looking at the business, I mean, I, I, I do like the market that it pursues. Essentially, this is cloud-based software for banks to help basically run their operating system. It's this, it's this Encino Bank operating system. It's focused on loan origination, account opening, and helping uh, banks really uh, bring all of their operations sort of under one operating system and making it a little bit more uh, sleek, a little bit more efficient, utilizing artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, all of that kind of good stuff that with you know all those buzzwords we're talking about today um, in, in, that, that come with that, that SaaS model. And uh, I mean, it's not a big company by any means. I mean, they, they chalked up $138 million in revenue for fiscal 2020. Now, the majority of that is subscription revenue, right? It's a SaaS business. So it is, it's nice recurring revenue. Um, but, you know, it, when you consider the market opportunity, and, and I mean, we're talking about the, the biggest in the sense of just, you know, financial institutions, they whittle that down and actually consider their opportunity to be more in the, the $10 billion range. Uh, it, it sounded like you know they're not talking about some some market opportunity that's going to be like hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, um, but but they do see you know a, a market op, uh, market opportunity for for themselves around ten billion. So one hundred thirty eight million versus ten billion, you can see the opportunity to grow there. Uh, they do have big bank customers like Bank of America, Truist. I know you're a big fan of Truist, uh, Chris. You know the, the name change really just uh, that, that that was a game changer for them, wasn't it? It really uh, was. <laughs> they maintain smaller bank customers as well. Say so they do they do cover the spectrum there. Uh, it's I guess really just trying to get a get a bead on what kind of competitive position they really hold. Uh, they have an interesting relationship with Salesforce. Salesforce is their second largest stockholder, and their their product, their their operating system, is essentially built on Salesforce's platform. Um, so they do rely on Salesforce uh, not only as a uh, supplier but also as a as a shareholder. Uh, so you know a lot to learn. I, I suspect we're going to walk out of this saying that they you know got swindled and that there was mispricing and they lost out on a lot of money as these IPOs seem to do these days. Um, you know, it seems to me like a direct listing would be a smarter way to go. Uh, it just seems like the, the, there are more and more examples coming out where these IPOs are just not really uh, offering the best results for the companies that are pursuing them. But I, I, I can certainly see the interest in this business. I think it's really just going to be a matter of, of checking under the hood and understanding what its competitive advantage really, really can be. Yeah, it, it is going to be interesting to see if we see more direct listings in the future. Um, you know, I, I think of it, it, it a little bit like what we've seen over the last few months with guidance. Uh, you know, so many companies suspending guidance for all of the obvious reasons. Um, but I would not be surprised if once we are through the pandemic, and as close to back to normal as possible, if some of these companies just say, yeah, no, we're, we're not doing that anymore. We haven't done it for the past <laughs> three or four quarters. We're just not going back to that anymore. Um, and and you all figure it out, because uh, we're, we're, we're just not that worried about it, and we're not going to play that game anymore. Um, it really does seem like, uh, you know, if Encino could go back in time, a direct listing would have probably uh, been more lucrative for them. Uh, yeah. But we'll see what happens.
Yeah, yeah, that's all you can do. I mean, it's it's always fun to see these new these new businesses come up because you certainly understand the problems that they're trying to solve. And I mean, I mean, with Encino, it's 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 a company that was founded by bankers, so they feel you know intimately com- connected to the problems that they're trying to solve in that banking operating system. And I, and I mean, I can, I can certainly tell you, speaking from experience working at a bank. Now, this was several years back. I mean, this is you know in the in the mid two thousands. Um, but but I mean, it was it was even then at a at a big bank. I mean, I was with Bank of America. There were there were areas that were piecemeal kind of. You know, it wasn't really. It wasn't streamlined. It wasn't consistent. It was a little bit clunky and uh, and uh, piecemeal. And so I, I certainly could see the the benefits from from trying to to streamline you know these operations. And, and if that's the problem Encino is is really solving that others can't solve, then I imagine they'd have an opportunity in, in front of them. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Mark Fool. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.